You are listening to a sermon from In-Town Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to listen to other sermons or find out more about the ministries and work of In-Town, please visit InTownChurch.com. Powers of Ten. It was done by a, a husband and wife couple, Charles and Ray Eames. And you may have seen the coffee table book since then or maybe on the internet But basically what this did was it talked about the powers of 10. It visually depicted this mathematical uh, system that the camera zeroed down on a couple who was having lunch or sharing a picnic in the park. And the scope was about a meter square. And then every 10 seconds, the camera pulled back 10 and, and multiplied that distance by 10. And so... You went through, uh, you saw them get a little bit smaller, you see the scope of the field, you see then the city, you see Chicago, then you see the Midwest, then you see the whole of the United States, and the camera keeps moving. And over the course of a few minutes, you see the stars that were just, weren't moving at all because the distance was so great. Now they begin to move, and the Milky Way and all of the other galaxies become just a speck that you can see off in the distance. And it's a power of 27 from the frame of one meter around those people, 27 powers out, and that's where you are. But what it does next is even more fascinating because it zooms back in at a rate of powers of 10 times two seconds, and it zeroes in on the, the hand of the man, and it goes into the, that man's hand to a power of 27. And so you go from the galactic distances to the subatomic level. And it is amazing. I remember seeing this when I was uh, in grade school and watching this and being mesmerized by it. Look at the scope, the expanse of the universe. And yet, even more fascinating, look at what is in my body, what is in my hand. And there's things deep within there that scientists don't even know about. There's all sorts of theories, string theory that is even deeper than a quark level. This, something that you can't even observe, that they're having to theorize about what's actually there. And I remember thinking how fascinating. I watched this again this last week on YouTube, and 30 years later it still is mesmerizing to me. Now, no one when they see this can be less than awed. No one that watches this can be less than amazed at the scope of creation, at the complexity, at the grandeur, at what we still don't know about our own bodies and about things that happen at a molecular level. There's a grandeur and intricacy that, on one hand, half the, some people would say, it's obvious. It points to a designer. How can you have that level of complexity and there not be a design behind that? And others would look at the very same stuff and be just as awed, be just as, as amazed at the complexity of it and say, there's no need for a designer. There's no need because the universe can, can spontaneously come to, come to pass. And that's basically what, if you caught in the news a few weeks ago or a month ago, what Stephen, Stephen Hawking, Hawking has concluded and Lawrence Krauss and others are saying that there is no need for a designer because the universe could come to being from nothing. We know the physics now to say that there is no need for a creator, that a universe can come from nothing. Now, the text that we read is an ancient text, thousands of years old, but it's obviously addressing a very modern question, a very modern problem. 
what kind of world do we inhabit? We see the complexity. We see the intricacy. What's behind that? What put it there? What kind of world do we inhabit? Is it random and inchoate? Is it ordered? Do we discover the patterns because of the designer being present? Or is it arbitrary? Is it chaotic? Or is it coherent? Now, Genesis takes this question up. And the basis of Genesis is that the beginning is that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness hovered over the face of the deep. Now, the waters and the seas throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, as Jesus walks on water, as he calms the storm, waters and sea have always been an image of chaos, of disorder, of lack of control, that there's something scary about the waters and the sea. And in creation, God is bringing order. He's bringing coherence. He's bringing predictability to this world, to nothingness, to chaos, to darkness, to waters and sea. Now, science, up until the middle of the last century, may have questioned the, the need of a designer, may have questioned what brought this all to pass. But there wasn't much question that we lived in a, a fairly coherent system, that we had math that could explain things, that we kind of knew how the world works. The Newtonian laws of physics, cause and effect, that if you see a cause, you can look and there has to be an effect. And they didn't quibble with the fact that the universe was basically coherent. We just needed better technology in order to grasp some of the things that we didn't know yet. But a unified theory of all of reality was within grasp, if not held already. Then, quantum mechanics, general relativity, and all of a sudden, the things that we knew about physics, the hard and fast science that we thought could predict everything, no longer held true at least not at the subatomic level. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle showed this, says that if you know where an electron is, you can't know what it's doing. But if you know what it's doing, you can't know where it is. There's a part of our world that we can't predict, that we don't know what's happening, that we can't see minutely enough. And even if we could, to measure it changes the outcome. Now, this is uh, Science 401, and you're getting it from a professor that has no scientific background, so bear with me. But what we see entering in is a lack of predictability. There's a place for chaos in the world. There's a place for chaos in our physics. An entire scientific discipline, chaos theory, emerges shortly thereafter to explain that there are parts of creation that we can't predict. You may have heard this explained from uh, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park and Dr. Ian Malcolm, for those of you who are really interested. But basically, chaos theory is that in dynamic, complex systems that changes at the very beginning, though minute, make extraordinary changes down the line. Now, it's sort of commonsensical, right, that that would happen. You put a small change in, and then exponentially things happen at a huge degree. And, but the question is, does a, a butterfly wing, this is the classic kind of question that gets tossed around in popular culture, does a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil create a thunderstorm in Texas? Now, Goldblum, or Ian Malcolm in the story, believes in chaos theory. 
that there are parts of our world that we can't predict what will happen next. And so he says, for instance, don't build an amusement park with giant T-Rexes in it because you can't control that. You don't know what's going to happen. And, of course, the park goes crazy and the dinosaurs eat everyone in the park except for those that are needed for the next sequel. But his argument is that we live in a fairly chaotic world, in a hostile world. But many have argued that the science, the physics inside a thunderstorm are just the same as on a billiard table or in a car engine. They're just scaled up to an enormous, almost infinite degree. So yes, you can't predict what's going on in a thunderstorm, but it's not that we need a whole new set of laws, a whole new physics to understand it. Brian Greene, who is the author of The Elegant Universe, says what's going on is not a breakdown in the order of the universe, but he calls it a calculational impasse, a calculational impasse. It's not that chaos theory is showing that there's a fundamental disorder in the universe, but instead that systems are either far too small, that is subatomic, or they're far too large, like a hurricane or a thunderstorm, for us to fully comprehend. It's not that we need new laws of physics necessarily to describe complex systems, but we need almost infinite computing power. Hmm. What did our passage say? That man is made a little lower than the heavenly beings, but crowned with glory and honor. Man is made, and in the Hebrew term, that means all of mankind. Man is made with dignity and with ability with great dignity and ability, but he's not God. I'm amazed when I read of these discoveries, when I read about string theory, quantum mechanics, quasars, and quarks, I'm at least as amazed at the persons who are making those discoveries and doing those computations as I am about the discoveries themselves. But man is made a little lower than God. God has created humanity and doesn't suffer under the same limitations. Our passage says, Consider your heavens, the moon and the stars, but the work of your fingers. We can't predict a thunderstorm more than a few days out, and we certainly can't control it. But the God who laid the foundations of the earth can. What looks like chaos to us is but the work of his fingers, and he brings order out of chaos. He creates the world with a basic comprehensibility and coherence. Now that's chaos moving into now coherence. And you may say, well, thanks for the science lesson, but that's not my life. My life is pandemonium. I have kids, and I understand Your life may be a hostile environment to the very things that you're wanting to establish, the very things that you're wanting to do with your life. Your life may not feel coherent at all. It may feel very disordered and chaotic. And we would be doing you a disservice if we'd had this discussion only at the esoteric level, only at the theoretical. But the Psalms don't do that. The Psalms take these grand claims and bring them down to the personal level. The Psalms understand that God is in control, and they boldly, complain, con, con, uh, they boldly proclaim that God is in control 
Yet, from the psalmist's perspective, their personal perspective, life is anything but, oftentimes. The disorder has broken in, in some fundamental way, to the psalmist's experience. Now, imagine, if you will, with me for a moment, a computer virus. Now, I don't have any experience with these because I don't use a PC. But nonetheless, what I'm told a computer virus does is that when you get a a virus in your computer, the underlying code of the operating system is still valid, right? The keyboard still works. You can still open programs and you can create stuff. But it takes a lot more deliberate effort. Things are a little bit slower and gummier. And every now and then, you have a huge, humongous crash where a program fails or your whole computer fails and you have to get a new hard drive. In our passage, God makes man different from the animals, gives him glory, shares his rule, and gives them a special relationship with God. Now, Psalm 8 is a meditation, most think, upon Genesis 1, on the creation story. And in that creation story in Genesis, we see the same beauty, we see the same dignity given to mankind. But they use this status to walk away from God. They use the special powers, if you will, to make a decision that brings a fundamental chaos to the world. Now, I don't want to get into a discussion here of free will versus predestination, But God certainly allowed quite an X factor into his creation by giving mankind the power to say, I will either serve you or not. There's a tremendous X factor. And creation walks away from its creator, goes against the fundamental way that God has set up his universe. Disorder, disturbance, a virus, if you will, is let loose in creation. The laws of gravity still hold true, but there are places that are broken. There are places of chaos. There are places where programs crash. And so there can be a fundamental unity, a coherence to the world, but yet in the local sense, in the particular sense, things can go crazy. Things can go awry. When we pray the Psalms, when we pray Psalm 8, we're taking up language that presumes that our lives are not random, not completely disordered, but they're marred. They're marred with hurt, with evil, injustice, alienation that is existing, but there's still an underlying unity, beauty, and symmetry. Notice the brackets that we saw in Psalm 8. It begins and ends with how majestic is your name in all the earth. There is nothing, in other words, that is not within, within those brackets. There is nothing outside of God's control. There is nothing in your life, though it feels chaotic, that is outside of the scope of God's control. The brackets of life. How majestic is your name in all the earth. But notice, it's not just a praise of some distant deity, some God that's far off, because the psalmist invites us to pray, O Lord, our Lord. There's a God who is in control over all things, who can make the stars and the planets with his fingers, and yet says, come to me. I invite you into relationship with me. I welcome you into relationship with me. O Lord, our Lord. 
He calls his creatures to approach him, to live life with his companionship. One of the most difficult things of life as we go through the inevitable trials, the inevitable difficulties, when we face challenges, is to do that alone. The feeling of aloneness compounds that whole stress, compounds that that feeling of, of stress and anxiety about something going wrong. We feel like we are alone, lost in the cosmos. There's nothing worse than that. In 2008, I was facing what was the, the first time in my career where I was without a job that wasn't by choice. I had left jobs, I would changed careers and done that before, but I felt like I was in control even though I didn't have a job. But this time around, I was at the mercy of the market. This was a job loss that we could point almost directly to the recession. Our church was running out of money. Now, it was weird going to staff meetings because I was the one that sort of volunteered and, and resigned, and everyone else was chipper. <laughs> everyone else was going about their daily business and their daily routines with the promise of future paychecks yet to come, but not me. I felt very alone in those staff meetings, even though these were caring people and they knew what was going on. I felt alone. I was isolated because I was the only one. Now, strangely, there was comfort in reading the newspaper, reading the news, because of the recession. There were hundreds of thousands of people losing their job each and every month, and so I could read and kind of feel in community with those people. Even though I didn't know them, their plight was much worse than mine. But as a Christian, what was infinitely more comforting was to know that God had reached out to me, that he had chosen to be my companion through life, that he had said, I will walk with you, I will never leave you, and though life feels like it is utter chaos for you right now in the particulars, I've got things under control. And I know every contingency of every contingency. The more I wrestled for control, the more I thought, putting out this resume is going to secure me a job and I've got to do this, and it's good to be responsible in those situations. But the more I tried to take control, the more chaotic it felt. But the more I was able to say, you know what? I am not in control. This is utter chaos that I cannot wrap my head around, my arms around. But God says he is with me and he is in my future and that there are brackets around this situation. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. Oh Lord, our Lord. When those brackets are around chaos in the locality, it's different. Your disorder becomes much more understandable. Now, we've talked about chaos and coherence, but there's also consummation. There's three points, not two. Remember, Psalm 8 is a meditation on Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and that God created the world good and beautiful, and perfect, but that something very ugly breaks in and tarnishes the whole order of creation. There's everyday chaos that you and I face, and one of the things that we need to remember is that that is not the way things are supposed to be, that the chaos that you feel in your home, in your personal life, in your mental understanding of things, the chaos that you feel at work, the disorder of your laundry basket, the disorder of your, your 
kids' stuff in the hallway, all of that is not the way things are supposed to be. God made things good and perfect and beautiful, and the disorder that we experience in life is not the way things are supposed to be. And so there's hope, because God himself says, I want that to end. I want to bring peace into your chaos. Disorder is not good. I am a God of order. I am a God of peace. I am a God of justice. I am a God of goodness and perfection. And that's the order of things that the Psalms anticipate, that the Psalms call from the future into the present. Now, we read of the man here in Psalm 8 and probably thought it to be very generic. And in one sense, it is. It talks about all of humanity, all of mankind is created with dignity. It's created in the image of God. But man is generic, and it's also very specific. If you're following along as we read this passage uh, and you brought your Bible, it's not printed in in the bulletin. But you would notice there's a superscript to this psalm, and it says a psalm of David. Now, a lot of times in the psalms, that means a psalm that was written by David. But it can also mean a psalm about David. What scholars say about this psalm and about any other time that David is talked about in the scriptures and the king and kingdom is talked about in the New Testament is that David... The king, the actual historical figure, is both a real king in a real time, but he's also an ideal. He's also an eschatological figure. Now, what does that big seminary word mean? What does it mean? Is that David was an actual earthly king, but he prefigures a perfect king that would one day take over David's throne, a perfect fulfillment of everything that the king of God's people should be. The perfect king, the perfect ruler who would bring in order, who would bring in peace, who would bring in protection, just like a perfect king would for his people. Now, the New Testament writers certainly pick up on this, and that's why I had you read Hebrews 2 in our liturgy. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? An exact quote of Psalm 8. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus. Friends, do you see there's an already not yet tension that we've talked about in previous sermons where Jesus has come in and he says, I am the revolutionary. I am the one who will bring peace. I am the king over David's throne. And he says, the kingdom is present in me right now. And just as we prayed in our prayers of the people, Jesus has begun to reign. He has begun to bring in peace instead of disorder. He's begun to bring back coherence instead of chaos that entered in when mankind walked away from God. But there's still a yet, yet we see Jesus. He rules, but not in fullness yet. We do not at present see everything subject to him, though it is. There's a dissonance, in other words, between how God designed the world and what we experience on a daily basis. But it is in this 
way, the way things ought to be that Christians find their calling. When we know the way things ought to be, then we know how to go and work. Then we know how to go and be a father, a parent, a brother, a sister, a coworker. It is in the way things ought to be that we are called to begin to make them that way, to pull in that future kingdom, that future reign into the present experience. You see, the Psalms speak of life both as an experience, also as an expectation. There's a conviction that God's purpose for the world, his original purpose, is resilient, and it will never stop until it comes to full, full fruition. His purpose will not yield until his world is brought to the full consummation of the way things ought to be. Now, strangely enough, the description of how life is, it is ordered, it is just, it is beautiful, is also a social criticism. It's also how we say this is how it should be. For example, we say this is a church that is a church that cares for mercy. That's a statement of fact. But when we see that our church is not capturing that, it's not actually doing that, we say, no, we need to shift gears because our church is a church that cares about people on the margins. Do you see? The way things are provides the way things should be. Provides a, stat- a social criticism against the status quo. Now, Hebrews picks up this whole idea of David being the one that will bring in order, bring in peace. And he says, it is Jesus who will one day do that. It is Jesus who's already set it in motion, and he will one day come and fully consummate it. And Jesus says, I will bring peace into the midst of your personal chaos. Allow me to walk into your life, and I will bring joy where there is downcast. I will bring delight where there is sadness. I will bring peace to your chaos. And he says also, far bigger than that, I will bring healing in the midst of cosmic brokenness. You see, friends, the gospel, the good news of Christianity is not just how you can get to heaven, but it's the whole scope of the scriptures that says Jesus has come to redeem all of creation. He is coming to heal cosmic brokenness. And he says to his church now, join me. Join me in pushing back in all the areas where chaos has triumphed over order and goodness. Join me in pushing against the chaos, beginning first with your heart and my heart. That's where it starts, but it never ends there. If you've experienced Jesus as he has come in and has begun to reorder your life, your thinking, your worldview, then don't let it, be, don't let it stagnate there. The intention is never that you alone get to heaven and you get peace, but it's that you would be a conduit, that you would give it to others. That's the point. Come to Jesus personally, but it's so much more. Join him on a crusade against disorder, against chaos, bringing coherence again to a world that's broken and needy and alienated. Let's pray together. Father, there is so much here to wrestle with. Lord, we know that you call your church out into, uh, into the city. You call us into our world. But, Lord, we ourselves feel so chaotic often.
we feel like we can barely uh, push back against the disorder in our own lives. Father, I pray that this would be a place where we see once again how needy we are for you and that you would be strong in the midst of our weakness. If, Father, we have not yet begun to experience you changing the basic structure of our lives, the basic disorder in our souls, I pray that that would happen today and that, Father, you would bring unity, bring order, bring beauty into our personal lives and into this church so that we can do that for others. And we pray in the majestic name of Jesus. Amen.